Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today, we're going to talk about Kevin McCarthy's fatal flaw in opening an impeachment inquiry against Joe Biden. And I interviewed Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate in Missouri, Lucas Kuntz, about how he can actually defeat Josh Hawley, how Hawley and his wife have spent their career stripping women of their reproductive rights, and what it would mean for Missouri if a Democrat was the 51st vote in the Senate. I'm Brian Tyler Cohen, and you're listening to No Lie. So as you know by now, Kevin McCarthy has officially launched an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. And I say Kevin McCarthy launched it because the decision was his and only his, opting to forego a vote on the full House floor. And of course, the reason that he needed to do that was because he didn't have the votes from his conference, and so he just took matters into his own hands. But here's why what he did screwed himself. In 2020, the Donald Trump-led Justice Department formally declared that impeachment inquiries are invalid unless the entire chamber takes formal votes to authorize them. Here's what the uh, head of the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel wrote at the time, quote, We conclude that the House must expressly authorize a committee to conduct an impeachment investigation and to use compulsory process in that investigation before the committee may compel the production of documents or testimony. And so... This is the current Office of Legal Counsel, or OLC, guidance that the government is operating under. And so when these House Republicans inevitably seek information from government agencies about Joe and Hunter Biden, which is ostensibly the whole point of this impeachment inquiry, the problem that they're going to run into is that now, because of their own party's new guidance that was put in place to protect Donald Trump, they're not going to be able to get any of that information. Here's voting rights attorney Mark Elias explaining that exact point. Well, if if Congress is seeking information from the IRS, for example, about Joe Biden, about Hunter Biden, um, are the IRS and other government agencies bound by this OLC guidance in the same way that the DOJ, for example, is bound by OLC guidance about not indicting a, a sitting president? Absolutely. Yeah. OLC, just to be clear, is Office of Legal Counsel. It is within the Department of Justice. And so it issues guidance to the executive branch. So the Department of Treasury, which is where the IRS is within, is bound by OLC guidance. Um, uh, in fact, you know, you mentioned the OLC guidance to the Department of Justice. That's actually much more unusual because that's the Department of Justice giving the Department of Justice guidance. Most OLC guidance is actually given to other agencies and departments that are looking for DOJ's position on an issue. Well, to that point, then, what information will Congress be able to retrieve from these other government agencies without satisfying OLC requirements. So what what Kevin McCarthy ought to do is um, go on the internet and type in (laughs) www.treasury.gov. And that's the information he's entitled to, right? So they can access the same information, Brian, that uh, you and I access, but they are not entitled to enforce a subpoena uh, or even really issue a subpoena, but I suppose they can issue a subpoena with a photocopier. Uh, But they're not not entitled to subpoena information um, uh, under current uh, circumstances. So what does that mean? It means that Kevin McCarthy's impeachment inquiry isn't going to net him any more evidence that he had before the impeachment inquiry was announced. And uh, to be clear, before the impeachment inquiry, he had zero. Literally, Republicans have yet to produce a modicum of evidence proving out any form of corruption or influence peddling that they claim Joe Biden is guilty of. No evidence whatsoever. 
and Kevin McCarthy knows that. That is why he made the unilateral decision to launch an impeachment inquiry as opposed to bringing it to the House floor for a vote. He knew he didn't have the full support of even his own conference. At least half a dozen Republicans have already come out publicly trashing this effort. And don't forget that there are currently 18 Republicans sitting in Biden won districts. And the last thing that those people want as we head into 2024 is an impeachment vote against Joe Biden in an attack ad against them. And with regard to those Biden district Republicans, consider this. This is from former Obama communications director Dan Pfeiffer's newsletter called The Message Box. I'll put a link in the show notes. Dan wrote, McCarthy has put them in a near impossible situation. They can either support impeaching Biden and seem like the very MAGA Republicans that the voters plan to reject or oppose impeachment and inflame the GOP base whose votes they also need. According to a Wall Street Journal poll, 52 percent of voters oppose impeaching Biden, while only 41 percent support it. That's bad news for those Republicans in Biden districts. I can't shake the sense that McCarthy didn't think this one through, end quote. And it's not just the impact that a Biden impeachment will have in those 18 districts. Think about the impact that a Biden impeachment will have on all Democrats as we head into 2024. Dan actually compared the impact of Donald Trump's impeachment uh, when he was president on Republicans. Quote, unfortunately, impeachment was good for Trump. During the impeachment process, Trump's poll numbers went up. In an NBC Wall Street Journal poll, his approval rating among Republicans shot to 90 percent after being in the 80s for much of the last year. Among independents, Trump's approval rating increased to 47 percent in January of 2020 and 51% in February 2020 after previously being in the 30s. Biden can see a similar rise in the polls if the Republicans undertake impeachment. Dan went on to cite a New York Times poll showing that 91% of Trump's 2020 voters are supporting him now, while only 87% of Biden's voters plan to vote for him in 2024. And wrote, an unpopular MAGA House Republican majority pursuing a partisan, unfounded impeachment is a textbook example of something that would cause Dems to come home to Biden. So in other words, let me just uh, give you a snapshot of where we're at right now. We've got an impeachment inquiry that was immediately hamstrung by guidance that was put in place by Republicans, meaning the inquiry won't be able to actually uncover anything of substance. But impeachment will have the unintended consequence of putting 18 Republicans currently sitting in Biden one districts at super high risk and have the other unintended consequence of rallying those wayward Democrats back home to Joe Biden, which is currently Biden's biggest weakness as we head into 2024. And they say that Kevin McCarthy isn't uh, some brilliant tactician, but still Kevin McCarthy will barrel ahead because this isn't about strategy or long-term plans or the Constitution. It is about keeping his job. This is all intended to placate the farthest fringes of McCarthy's base who don't care at all about those Republicans who are sitting in Biden one districts, but instead they just want something to brag about on Fox or on Newsmax. McCarthy just doesn't want them to call for a motion to vacate and put his speakership at risk. And so he does whatever they ask, regardless of the consequences, because this isn't about anyone other than himself. And in this case, the consequences are already looking pretty grim for Republicans. Next up is my interview with Lucas Kuntz. Now we've got Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate in Missouri, Lucas Kuntz. Thanks for joining. Yeah, absolutely. Great to be here. Now, you're running for Josh Hawley's seat. Josh Hawley has obviously been in the news, especially lately because of his involvement in the events of January 6th that Donald Trump is now being prosecuted for. But as far as Missouri is concerned, there are folks out there who say that a Democrat can't win in Missouri. Uh, can you speak on what you've learned that might suggest otherwise? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a few things. First is that Democrats have won in Missouri. We've won here in Missouri very recently, you know. Up through 2017, most of the statewide elected officials were Democrats. Uh, our last Democrat actually left office, statewide official, left office this year. So uh, Missouri is one of those unique states where 
voters are willing to vote for both sides uh, when they're given the right opportunity. And, you know, <laughs> Josh Hawley is that opportunity. It's crazy. But this guy is the least popular U.S. senator up for reelection on the Republican side in the entire country. The least popular one, like like worse than Ted Cruz. Right. And I'm talking about with the <laughs> yeah. people within the state. Like, yeah. it's crazy that you can be less popular than Ted Cruz. But he is. And uh, so that gives us a unique opportunity here. You know, we ran some recent polling that showed us in a dead heat with him. Just an example of Democrats or voters voting for both sides. You know, in 2016, when uh, Donald Trump won the state by 17 points, uh, Jason Kinder came within less than three points of winning. He's another veteran like me. As a veteran, you're open to, able to open doors that other people aren't. And uh, and you know what? The guy he was running against wasn't as hated as Josh Hawley is. And we don't need to win by as much as Jason Kander would have need. You know, we don't need to close the gap as much as 17 points. So uh, it's just really exciting. We're in a good spot. And I'm excited about it. Can you talk about the significance of running one of the only offensive races for the Senate ahead of 2024? Yeah, I mean, it's critical, right? Like Democrats are playing defense all over the country. Not a great and, map. Uh, uh, yeah, that's what everybody's telling me. And so uh, I'm excited about it, though, because Missouri's in play, man. This is my state. We're running a great campaign. We're neck and neck with Josh Hawley. We're out raising him. You know, we've raised um, we raised over two and a half million dollars in the first six months. That's more than him. He was bailed out by the National Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee. They're actually running attack ads against me because uh, they're worried about his numbers. They know where he's at right now. And so, uh, you know, for me, it's just um, it's great to have Missouri as a as a target state that people are interested in because it's out here on the front lines in the fight for democracy. He, he's not raising money. He's having trouble raising money. What tactic is he using to actually get some money in his campaign? Uh, well, not ones that work. And so what the thing about Josh Hawley is like this guy was a country club Republican when he ran in 2018, right? He was supported by Senator Jack Danforth, a longstanding sort of bipartisan Missouri U.S. Senator. Um, the guy made him. He cleared a Republican primary for Josh Hawley to become Attorney General. He cleared the Senate primary for him. He made, he did all the fundraising for him. And so, you know, since then, Jack Danforth has said that Josh Hawley's the worst mistake he's ever made. He's not going to raise the money for him again. And uh, when I say that, like, let's back up a second for everybody because Jack Danforth is the reason that Clarence Thomas is on the Supreme Court. So like this, this guy's made some blunders in his life and he's yeah. still sticking to his guns that uh, Josh Hawley's the worst mistake. So he lost sort of the traditional country club Republican funding machine. Um, there are a couple other billionaires that have stepped away from him. He's trying to get a grassroots machine going, but like people just don't. He's not a trustworthy guy, right? Like people aren't interested in him. They're not excited about him. Uh, he just comes across as kind of weird and gross. You know, yeah. he's got this book on manhood he right. put out, like just a bunch of weird stuff. And uh, and so he's actually failing. His main fundraising right now is uh, transfers from other Republicans, you know, National Republican Senatorial Committee, um, John Cornyn down in Texas. They're keeping him afloat. Now, on health care, we just had the one year anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, that law represents the first successful bid by Democrats to actually lower health care costs, to get the government to negotiate lower uh, prescription drug prices, Finally, to man. cap out of pocket costs for seniors at 2000 bucks a year. I know that health care is one of the issues that you've been most outspoken about in your campaign. Can you talk about why that is? Yeah. So, you know, uh, it, it actually goes back to my eighth birthday. Um, who got into healthcare policy when they were a kid? I, I didn't, but uh, but you know, um, well, I should give a little background on my. Uh, you know, I I grew up in this working class neighborhood in Jeff City, Missouri. Uh, everybody's paycheck to paycheck. You know, my parents got married at nineteen and twenty two. They had a bunch of kids, and uh, and we were we were all living our best life though. You know, great neighborhood. Everybody's parents taking care of all of us kids running around, and um, and so you know, my eighth birthday comes around. 
and I was going to get like the coolest birthday present ever. And so I was going to get a little sister and, um, you know, me and my other siblings, my parents were Catholic. And so we were born like bang, bang, bang. Right. And, uh, and if anyone has siblings close to you, you know, you love them, but there's like a lot of competition there. And we were going to get this, uh, this little girl is going to be eight years younger than me. I was so excited. She was going to come on my birthday. Um, she was actually born two days before my birthday. And then so um, the night before I finally got to meet her, uh, you know, went to the hospital. I got to hold her. My mom was like, oh, I think she's going to come home on your birthday. It's going to be so great. Uh, and I was just I was thrilled. Right. Like um, uh, it really was the biggest birthday present I was ever going to get. Um, when you don't have enough money, you get like, you know, I get like a no fear T-shirt or something <laughs> for, for my birthday. Right. And uh, and to have this happen was going to be so great. And then. Uh, you know, that night some helicopters came in, a helicopter came in actually, and uh, they found that my sister had a heart condition and that, and they flew her away to, I grew up in mid-Missouri, they flew her two hours away to St. Louis and my, my parents followed. And so, you know, instead of having my little sister come home on my birthday, I actually woke up and uh, I didn't have a little sister and I also, I didn't, my parents weren't there and it was just, you know, kind of me my grandma came down to try to take care of me. And, um, you know, for an eight-year-old, that's that's hard, man. And I remember I, I spent that birthday um, praying that my little sister didn't die on my birthday because uh, like, would you ever get a birthday again uh, if that happens? And um, it seems kind of selfish now to, to say that, right? But as a kid, that's important to you. And, uh, and as hard as it was for me, like now looking back on it, um, I just had a baby, was in the NICU for eight weeks, and uh, that was hard for us. And uh, my wife Marilyn and I, and just thinking about what my parents was must have gone through is 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 incredible, right? Like for a paycheck to paycheck family in this country, when you you know get injured at work, when the furnace you've been limping along for two winters goes down, when your water heater goes out, when your car breaks down, like that's it, you're done, and uh, and you're not going to make it. And uh, my parents didn't have any money; they went bankrupt. It was very hard for us, and um, you know it shouldn't be that way in this country we have the capacity to make it different. Like the reason it's that way for people is because they've made decisions like, let's not negotiate for, for drugs. Like, why would you make that decision? Who doesn't negotiate when they buy something like that? That's crazy. Uh, you know, it's, it's transferring uh, healthcare decisions to insurance companies. Um, you know, it's, it's offshoring all of our production of pharmaceuticals. All these decisions were made by politicians who were bought off by folks. And, uh, and you know, the only reason we made it is not because you know, the country club politicians helped us out. It's not because other people or uh, that our government helped us out. It's because um, the people in that neighborhood who had no more money than we did passed the plate around for us at church, brought food by the house and took care of us. And again, like it shouldn't be that way in this country. It's uh, it's a real tragedy that it's that way. And so for me, like um, that's why healthcare is important. It's a huge issue. And uh, we need to fundamentally change how it works in this country. Well, obviously, another healthcare issue is women's reproductive health care and the whole issue of abortion. That's that was a principal issue in 2022. It's going to be a principal issue again as we head into 2024. Yeah. Obviously, Josh Hawley is opposed to Roe. Can you talk about what religious extremists did in Missouri uh, to strip reproductive rights away from women? Well, they took them all away. Like it's it's uh, it's I mean, it was we were the first state. Uh, where women had no access to abortion um, under like any circumstances, really. And it's it's scary for the average Missourian. And really, the, the average Missourian just wants to be able to make the decisions for their own life, right? right? You just want to have the resources to make the decisions uh, that you think are best in your life. And, uh, and it's just, uh, 
you know, when, when people look at, I guess draconian might be the best word, but just like the, 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 the weight of this law that basically takes away uh, your access to abortion completely. Um, some of them think, well, how does that get enforced? Right? Like you're not even allowed to, you're not allowed to leave the state to get one supposedly like you can't get it in the state. And, uh, and the thing is that we have precedent in our state for how it gets enforced because a few years ago, the Missouri state health director actually used health data from Planned Parenthood and, uh, and other records that he could get to track women's menstrual periods to see if they were having abortions or not because uh, because he wanted to see if that was a possible way to do it. And they, they were. They were able to see if abortions were, were happening or not. And like, like how did they, they find out about this? Uh, so there were there were um, trying to shut down the last Planned Parenthood um, abortion center in Missouri. And there were a bunch of hearings on it. And the health director testified that, um, yes, he did. In fact, first, the health department denied doing it. But then there was a spreadsheet where they literally were tracking all these women's menstrual cycles to see if they're having abortions. So like and so the, it came the, out. the dystopian the the dystopian like almost almost like parody of itself when we when we you say what what could happen like the natural progression of what could happen with these draconian laws against women's reproductive care literally happened in Missouri yeah that, I mean if you're gonna ban it this is what it looks like right. right like like there's no other way to figure out if if people are pregnant and then are no longer pregnant right yeah. and uh, I mean it's worse than that because then when you think about it further you're like well if they track your menstrual cycle and then you know you're pregnant for a little while and you're not anymore well, did you have a miscarriage? Are they going to come in there and like, uh, you know, demand all the information on right. how that went for you? Like, it's mind blowingly crazy. And so um, Missourians are aware very intimately right. that this is what it looks like when you really go this far because we had it. And of course, that guy was run out of office. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, like, Missourians I guess, ran him out of office. They were like, no, we don't want that. For those watching and listening who aren't in Missouri, can you like... I guess what was it? What was it like? How was that received among the people in Missouri when when something like that happened? Because I, I guess I guess just like shed some light on 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 the way that that was received. Dude, it's terrifying. Like Missourians are independent people. Like again, we just want to have the resources to control our own lives. We've been trying to take power back from people like Josh Hawley and like this creepy politician who was uh, who was tracking menstrual cycles. And uh, and so that's what we did. You know, he got run out of office for that. Uh, people thought it was outrageous, which they rightfully should. And um, and, you know, it's just another example of Missourians taking power back for themselves, which we've done again and again. I mean, since 2018, you know, we've overturned the anti-union right to work 68 percent to 32 percent, like huge yeah. margin there. We passed Medicaid expansion. We increased the minimum wage five dollars over the federal level. We passed first medical and then recreational cannabis. And it's just like, you know. You can smoke weed in Missouri now. You can get some health care and uh, you can finally get paid, uh, a, you know, a, a little bit more than you did before. And all that happened because people wanted to take power for the back for themselves. Because, again, we just want the ability to make our own decisions. And this is this is right down that line. I mean, the, the idea here is that we put abortion on the ballot in 2024. And when Missourians have that opportunity, just like in Kansas, uh, you know, we're going to take that opportunity to protect our rights. And just to be clear, that will there will be some type of referendum on the ballot in 24. It's in the process right now. The Republican secretary of state and attorney general are doing everything they can to, uh, you know, overcome the Democratic process and to keep it off the ballot. It's in the courts right now. And uh, and I mean, hopefully it'll get on there. I mean, I want it on there. I think every Missourian wants it on yeah. on there pretty much, right? Yeah. Like the reason they don't want it on there because they're like, oh well, maybe we messed this one up, right? <laughs> yeah. Dog that caught the car, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, Josh Hawley's 
entire family is actually pretty fully invested in stripping women of their reproductive rights. Can you speak on that? Can you speak on what the rest of, you know, uh, uh, another well, yeah, member of I Josh mean, Hawley's family did? So, so uh, this is the family business. This is the Hawley family business. And so it's it's really corrupt and, and it's really bad. And, you know, there's a little background here. So um, uh, Josh Hawley's wife, um, her job is she works as a lawyer and she goes around and tries to, to deny people the right to abortion access. Essentially, that's that's like that's the best way to summarize it. And so uh, but where Josh Hawley comes involved and where it gets really like corrupt and and, and bad is, um, you know, there was this there was this Trump nominee judge who was languishing in uh, not going to get confirmed land because he had written a bunch of stuff about um, abortion acts, you know, abortion, things like that. Other things. I don't even remember what they all were, but uh, basically he had some outrageous paperwork and uh, he couldn't even get through like Republican confirmation. And uh, you know, it's bad when, when even, <laughs> that's when even right. the Republicans. Where they're like, eh, this game might be a little too extreme. Let's just like yeah. bury that paperwork and <laughs> leave him there. When Donald Trump has like a ninety something percent approval rating in the Republican Party, and they're like, "But that guy, <laughs> that guy's, <laughs> that too guy's much, a little man. too much for us." And so, uh, but the guy was like, "Well, he's. I mean, give him credit. He was a go getter. He was like, how can I get my nomination through?'" And uh, he went and he found Josh Hawley, who was running for a Democrat seat against Claire McCaskill. And he's like, maybe if that guy gets in there, he'll help me out. He saw, you know, that the Hawley family business is attacking abortion access. So he donated to Hawley's campaign. Uh, Hawley was then elected. He helped this guy get through the nomination process. He was then nominated as a judge, or I'm sorry, confirmed as a judge in Texas. And then when uh, Josh Hawley's wife was forum shopping, to trying to find a client to take away the abortion pill, Mifeprestone, um, she made sure that she found somebody who was in that judge's district and would go in front of the court in front of him. And so, of course, she did. And then she puts her case in front of, of this judge who was a Holly donor and who Holly helped get through. And then, like, it gets even worse. Like, how can this get worse? I know Josh Holly uses his U.S. Senate office to write an amicus brief in support of his wife. So he used his Senate office where he got this guy confirmed uh, to, so, you know, to, to basically lobby a federal judge to side on, on his wife's behalf, which then happened, of course. So we hear about like the peak of corruption being judge shopping, right? But because they already own the judge, they had to find a client in the judge's <laughs> district right. that they can that they can then that's use right. to bring a case there. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. It really is unbelievable. But I mean, th these people have no shame. I mean, again, we're talking about the guy who wrote a book called Manhood by Josh Hawley. Like, yeah. What would having a Democrat um, in an otherwise red state like Missouri mean for that state? Like, what would it mean for your constituents if you were the 51st vote versus another Republican in just another, you know, in just another red state? Well, here's the really like sad thing about Josh Hawley. And this will take some background for me. But, you know, when I talk about my old neighborhood where everybody took care of us, passed the plate, brought food around, um, you know, we were all working class, you know, all paycheck to paycheck. And uh, it was still, you know, it was a strong community, though, and people were able to take care of each other. And, um, you know, I joined the Marine Corps to serve that community. I thought that'd be the best way. I did 13 years. I deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, and I watched politicians like Josh Hawley wage warfare on that community. I mean, you know, when he was our attorney general, he sh immediately shut down the division of that office that protects us from corporate predators, basically. And then he led a lawsuit that made sure that 236,000 Missourians wouldn't get overtime pay anymore. Like that's how people in our neighborhood take care of each other. Like overtime pay is how we do that. Yeah. And uh, that cost us $27 million a year. It's brutal. And if you go back to that neighborhood now, first house I lived in is an empty lot. 
The one I joined the Marine Corps out of is uh, boarded up right now and, uh, you know, falling apart. It's going to be gone soon, I suspect. The corner store was boarded up because it was robbed so many times it couldn't get insurance. And again, I'm talking about a magical Americana neighborhood just like in the 1990s when I was growing up there and this has happened. And uh, and the reason it's happened is because, you know, politicians like Josh Hawley attack it. And then uh, when they get into office, they they choose not to invest in it. And so... You know, um, traditionally, Republicans in Missouri, uh, Roy Blunt is the latest example, would at least bring money back to our, our state and invest in communities and neighborhoods like that. So Roy Blunt brought back, you know, $350 million a year. And uh, and Josh Hawley brings back $0 a year. He doesn't use any leverage, not that he has any because everybody there hates him. But uh, but what, what me being the U.S. senator for our state would mean is that finally we'll have a U.S. senator again who will invest in our communities, who will bring money back here, who will do things like vote for investing in the next generation of energy, uh, you know, infrastructure projects and other things, which these guys won't do. We're a heavy veteran state. Josh Hawley voted against the PACT Act, which, you know, if you don't know, is was was made so that um, veterans like me who are exposed to burn pit, uh, burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan, which I was, would have access to VA care uh, for the damage that that did to us. Like he voted against that, man. Yeah. Like he hasn't taken care of any of us normal everyday Missourians and so it's going to be a real opportunity for just everyday people to be taken care of again and and you know be represented rather than ruled because like that's what the guy wants to do with us he wants to rule us just control everything yeah and, and can, can you just expand on on that point because I mean this is a guy running for re-election as part of a party that's predicated its entire identity on freedom, and yet that's not really what we're seeing right now. Yeah, I mean, he wants to control us in the bedroom. He wants to control us in the doctor's office. He wants to control us in the workplace. He wants to, I mean, you know, there's that manhood book, right? Like, he wants to, he, I mean, the might, it's so creepy, man. I So I had to read it. My campaign manager <laughs> made me read it. Yeah. I only got through half. Yeah. So well, actually, yeah. My, my next question literally is, what is your favorite excerpt from the book? Oh, oh what's yeah. his favorite I excerpt the, from I the book? I okay, saved the most yeah. important question for the end. Uh, well, it's probably the 10,000 times that he uses the phrase Epicurean elite, which I'm pretty <laughs> sure you got to be a pretty fancy elite to even know what that yeah. means. No, I didn't know what it means. I was like, what the hell is that? What, what, what bro What bro in a frat house doesn't use, a, doesn't yeah. use that word on a daily basis? Well, when the Epicurean elites. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it's just like... Um, I mean, the weirdness about the book, though, is um, like his his solution to the masculinity crisis is for people to be more like him. Like, it's crazy. He Shocker. Goes through, yeah. Shocker. Thought, huh? <laughs> thunk it. But he starts with Adam in the Bible yeah. and goes through men in the Bible. Just to the just to the peak of, just, of masculinity. <laughs> just just describes how he's like them and then reminds everyone that if they, too, did what Josh Hollywood, uh, it would solve all the problems for men in the world. Oh, and by the way. Uh, removing women from the workplace would also be helpful right, right. unless they're doing things like making sure that other women don't have access to abortions. Mm -hmm. Right. In which, which case, in which case yeah. yeah, they're doing God's work. So it's okay. Um, uh, no, it's crazy. And, uh, but it's just like, it's just, if you write a book like that, you are, you're trying to rule everybody, right? Like, like, like you're trying to tell them what to do. You're trying to control them. And like, you know, I didn't bring my kid into the world to be told what to do by yeah. like the coward of January 6th, right? Like, yeah. like no. And, uh, and that's how it is for all Missourians. Like we don't want to be told what to do, man. We yeah. don't want to be ruled. Like we want you to invest in us. Your job is to invest in us and give us the resources to decide what to do, uh, to take care of each other. Like, you know, the people in my neighborhood take care of me. That's all we want. That's it. Like, otherwise, like take your weirdness and 
you know, do what you want within the walls of your own home. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to that point, how can we help your campaign and why is it important to help your campaign now so early ahead of 2024? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, what we're doing right now is, uh, well, what we found is that when my message gets out there, like this race is 100% competitive. Missourians are willing to, to vote for both sides, particularly against a guy like that. And so what we're doing right now is getting our message out to everybody. And so, you know, donations to us right now uh, are critical in, in facilitating that. We're hiring organizing directors so that we can build out the GOTV mu- movement in the state, uh, voter registration. That takes a long time. Like you can't just get money like next September and, and expect to do that. And so, you know, we're making those investments right now. Um, other things people can do is, you know, spread the word. Um, a lot of people found out about us through your YouTube channel. Actually, it's wild. Like I go all around the state and people are like, oh, I saw you on Brian Tyler Cohen. And I'm like, yes, that's right. And uh, because people listen to that. And so when you share links with your friends, uh, when you tell people about the campaign, when you know somebody in Missouri who you went to school with or met in the military and you send them the stuff like that's how we get the word of mouth out. And, and that's absolutely critical. That's how we are going to win this race. And uh, and so far it's working and we just need to keep snowballing that. And what's the website link? The website is lucaskuntz.com. So it's uh, Lucas, L-U-C-A-S, K-U-N-C-E dot com. We're at Lucas Kuntz Mo on uh, Twitter, Instagram, all that sort of stuff. Great. And I'll put that link in the post description of this video in the show notes on the podcast as well. Lucas, thanks so much. Good luck in the campaign cool. show. And you're welcome back anytime. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again to Lucas. And for anyone listening, if you want to support his candidacy, make sure to check out his website. All right, that's it for this episode. Talk to you next week. You've been listening to No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen, produced by Sam Graber, music by Wellesley, interviews captured and edited for YouTube and Facebook by Nicholas Nicotera, and recorded in Los Angeles, California. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your preferred podcast app. Feel free to leave a five-star rating and a review. And check out BrianTylerCohen.com for links to all of my other channels. Thank you.